Hey Ali. Hey. How's it going? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Hi Abbas. Hi guys, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, well, thank you very much Ali for joining us live from yeah. the US of A. It's uh it's a pleasure thank to you have you. Invite. It's a pleasure to have you on. So, yeah, before we get started, I do like to ask what would your drink order be if we were doing this catch-up as we would like to be doing it in a bar, whether that be over in Chicago or here in rainy Manchester or Amsterdam? Um, my drink of choice is usually a cider. Uh, here, there are not many options, so just whatever the bar has. Um, brand is not a preference. Um, yeah, that's that would be my bar choice. We're living in a fantasy world, so you can pick your favorite brand if you want to. Give them a free plug. <laughs> I do like um I used to live in Seattle and they have quite a few nice like dry ciders out there. So I like a Seattle Cider Dry is a company name. There Perfect. we go. Shout out to Seattle Cider Dry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Ali, before we get into it and I start bombarding you with questions, would you like to give a quick introduction and to maybe tell us a little bit about your current role at Chicago Fire and how you got there? Yeah, um, so I am the Youth Affiliates Coordinator for the Chicago Fire. We have um, eight youth clubs in the city of Chicago and then around the Midwest, um, and I help basically liaise between the Chicago Fire and these clubs. So I do everything from risk management of coaches to marketing uh, and then planning events, um, just all encompassing. Um, and then I also coach as well with one of the clubs. Um, so I've enjoyed taking that on this year. Uh, I got here through working in various roles throughout the soccer world in uh, the U.S. Uh, and wanted to do this kind of because it was more focused on youth and youth development, uh, which in when I met you in Scotland, was doing my master's uh, research in youth development at an academy at Hibs. Um, so that's kind of how I got here in my current role. Uh, do you want me to expand on any of that? Yeah, um, I was going to ask you what yeah. age group you coached and what age group you would like to coach moving forward. Yes, um, I coach our 2012, uh, so U9 girls team. And I like it because they're the young girls and super easy uh, and they're just a lot of fun. I don't need to be too knowledgeable yet um, <laughs> and just get to have fun in training. Yeah, that's crazy to think that 2012, are, you know, is actually nine-year-olds that can fully play football. That's just such a strange thought. Um, oh, I know our oldest age groups are like 2003s. Like that's, you should be five years old right now. <laughs> <laughs> crazy yeah so speaking more broadly about the youth systems in america and in the uk you mentioned there that you were at hibs for a little bit in scotland for anyone who doesn't know hibs are the best football club in the world um mm -hmm. and they played <laughs> they play in the scottish premier league and so the, what are the big differences i mean in my head i've kind of got academy system versus college system yeah, I think, I mean, one of the biggest things here is the pay-to-play model, so it just costs a lot to get into soccer, which can be a huge barrier. And then the we're starting to kind of transition more to an academy system. Um, 
I think the mix of players entering the MLS right now from the youth side is like 50-50 of college players from academy players. Uh, it's just so different than what we do for other sports uh, with you know basketball and football and the big draft system that they have. For us to transition kind of to more what happens in Europe with uh, academies and homegrown players, it's I don't know if how much pushback it's seen. It's just like so new to us here. Um, but I know that the club I currently am with, uh, we have quite a few homegrown players on our roster now that have come come up through our academy um, and have forgotten college or are too young actually to go to college and now have signed their first contract. So it is kind of transitioning to, to what you see over in Europe, um, but it, there's still just that little bit of a mix with it. Um, but the big difference I'd say is probably more at the younger levels with the pay-to-play model and just not being as accessible, uh, which kind of hurts our popularity as a sport. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, but on those players that are too, now currently too young to go to college but are still on your roster, mm-hmm. is are you expecting them to still go to college, to have that college experience and get their education? Or is it now that they've signed a contract, they're, they're sort of they're in, in for the long haul in terms of a soccer career? Yeah, I think that we'll see them do online school. Uh, the MLS used to have a partnership with mm-hmm. one of our online universities here and that would allow players and employees of the MLS to complete a degree for I think like 25% of the normal cost. So a lot of players wow. are doing that, um, which is great. The partnership just ended, so I'm not quite sure what the plan uh, is for after yeah. that, <laughs> but I don't, I don't anticipate these players like going, going to in-person school um, unless they're cut from our roster. Uh, they'll probably just yeah. do some type of online education, which I think that the club would promote that. I know that there's other clubs that work with the local universities to make sure that they're still getting an education. Yeah. Is that is still the most popular route to go through college, though? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think in general it is. I think for soccer players, not quite as much. Okay. Like yeah. Our current roster, we do have one that he is a starter for. Well, this year he's not. Last year he started for us as a rookie and went to four years of college but that's it to have that happen is pretty rare i think whereas the majority of them now come from the academy so it is kind of a switch from what it used to be yeah are there any rules around how many players you can bring through an academy how many players you have to get through a draft yeah um i don't believe that there are rules regarding um us picking players from a draft their homegrown players do allow us some flexibility with our rosters. So we have like a salary cap here. And if they're homegrown players, they don't necessarily fall underneath that cap. So it is beneficial to sign a homegrown player um, over a college draft player. Oh, wow. So a homegrown player can actually be paid anything, as in it's not under the cap at all, like a designated player, or is that, again, something different? Homegrowns don't. They don't fall under the same um, salary cap that other players would. Um, And then we do have other incentives for, like, young players as well. So we're really trying to focus on the development side um, rather than bringing in high-paid DPs, which we still do. But there's more incentive to focus on younger players, I think, now. Yeah, and I I think that's pretty obvious with a lot of the the exports that we're now seeing in the European leagues, a lot of young American players. But before we get on to American national team players i was going to go back to the mls quickly and and talk a bit more about the salary cap stuff because it's come out 
recently that Matuidi was signed for Inter Miami breaking the budget rules because he wasn't a designated player and I mean it does seem quite confusing for someone watching from Europe and where we don't have these rules about designated players and salary caps and I just kind of wondered how much you think that it maybe limits the MLS and it sort of contributes to this kind of identity crisis that we're seeing a little bit with the MLS whether it considers itself to be a retirement league or a stepping stone it seems to be quite restrictive. Yeah, um, I think it's. I think there's both sides of the debate on it. Um, it's. I I personally like the differences or the requirements to fill a roster because um, I think it does make us focus a little bit more on the youth players or more younger players uh, and U.S. based players. I think we we have a cap on how many international players we can have as well. But I guess, yeah, coming if you're looking at it from Europe, it can seem a bit confusing in that way. There's different ways you can use the money within this that each team is allotted to buy up different contracts. Um, so I think that their teams can be creative, basically, to ensure that their team is you know, full of well-paid players. Uh, usually that way, to do that, though, they have to then focus some of their resources on younger players or um, homegrown players as well. So do, I don't, does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, that makes it, it makes sense. And it, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be football if it was overly complicated and full of <laughs> loopholes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, but how, how do you feel as, as a fan of the MLS or working in the MLS about some of the criticism that it gets or just, you know, the way people see it here in Europe as it being, as I, as I said, like a little bit of a retirement league. I mean, before you had Kaka, Gerard, Beckham more famously going there yeah. towards the end of their careers. I know we are seeing a bit of a change now and we're now seeing young players come from the MLS, but how do you think you get from being this league that's either seen as producing young players and being a home for older players to being a league where you can keep your talents for a longer period of time? Yeah, um, and I like that we are transitioning, in my opinion, from a little bit from the retirement league to the stepping stone league. I just i I don't know if we can ever be at the same level of like players stay with us for a long period of time, have the same notoriety that European leagues do. I think it's going to take a lot longer. So for me, I I like them that we are focusing more on the younger players and. You've seen, I mean, some players have gone over now to to Europe, but the the focus on like the U22s or the under-22s, getting players from South America and then bringing them up to to increase the level of play in the MLS and then selling them to make more money for the league. I like that more than, you know, just spending a lot of money on um, Beckham or Gerard because I think that it, it just helps. It focuses more on the development than on just fan development. Or playing development versus fan development. Yeah, I I would one hundred percent agree. And actually, to be fair, all three of us. I mean, the Scottish Premier League is hardly you know the the global league that it that it should be, and is very much <laughs> is very much a league where we try and produce players such as Super John McGinn and Bass. I mean, the Dutch league Ajax in recent years has been quite like that as well, hasn't it? Oh yeah, I mean that—that's kind of what I was gonna say. As much as it's for cl- individual clubs to try and fight 
their way, try and fight their way as high as they can up into the hierarchy of, of football in Europe. It's probably the same with leagues uh, and especially the MLS is just trying to fight your way up and get as, as close as possible to the tops like of Premier League or the Premier Division or any or the Serie A where yeah, you want to be able to produce as much talent that those leagues are buying from you and spending the big money on those talents rather than yeah. making having another stepping stone between your league and then another league and that's when they then go to the big clubs. It's interesting to see that the MLS is sort of garnering that and I think it's interesting as well that you've got examples of, of players very consciously also picking the US men's national team um, to play for mm-hmm. even if they have a choice between other countries as well. I think there's a lot of a lot of potential, a lot of future in it, but results are still lacking, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it definitely feels like on the men's side, it feels like the national team is very much on the cusp of something. You know, you've got a lot of young players now playing in Europe at big clubs, Juventus, Man City, Chelsea. You've got a lot of big names that are starting to come through, but as Bastian mentioned just there, the results just haven't quite been there yet. What's coverage been like in America around that? Yeah, I think that it's it's just frustrating. Like as you said, we have talent that we clearly have talent on the team. It's just figuring out how to you know just win. <laughs> I think that there's like talk around like we have a losing culture just we haven't like built the habit yet of it so players just don't there's not that expectation and and so there's not quite as much like grit or fight in it I think that that that's at least what what I see because it's it is difficult to just understand how we can keep losing like this especially when our women's team has so much uh in terms of winning culture and um notoriety in that area so I guess we'll just have to wait and see on it. Um, but it is frustrating to see, like, continuing down to, like, the, so our U23s and the Olympic qualifiers not making it either um, after going into the qualifiers as the second-ranked team, I believe. So it's um, it's just frustrating because there's not really, like, a, a reason that – or there doesn't seem to be, like, a, a pinpoint reason <laughs> to it. Yeah, I think the sort of traditional – argument has often been oh well it's the coaching it's the there hasn't been the the tactical knowledge but I mean uh, that doesn't stand up because today Jesse March has just been given the RB Leipzig role and he's he's been said to be the next big thing in football management so I mean there's obviously some talent there amongst American coaches so it does seem a little bit strange that the men seem to be underperforming so much but as you mentioned, I mean, the women have been absolutely smashing it. And and I know that you did work uh, in women's football for a little bit. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, very briefly, um, I worked with the women's team out in the Seattle-Tacoma area for, for for just a handful of months before coming to the fire. Um, I was the team manager there. So um, got to travel and uh, plan all the trips for them. Um, it was very... It was, it's interesting to go from that to a men's team and just see the resource differences with it. Um, but wow. then see like the players on the fields. Like I worked with Megan Rapino and then to see that just what she's given in terms of resources to what a men's team is given. It's, it's just interesting. Yeah. I can imagine that that's some stark differences between the two, but did you notice any other differences between 
the men's game and the women's game in, in the way they approached it, the way they managed games, the way they dealt with media, anything like that? Yeah, I think, I mean, our women's league is just is so much smaller than our men's league here. So in terms of like TV coverage or just seeing the teams on billboards or news ads, it's, it's just a lot less. Uh, so I think that that can hurt the league a little bit in terms of fans uh, in building that up. Uh, I worked for them like right before the World Cup, so there, we did get to see quite a few um, posters of Megan and Allie from the, the team in Seattle, um, which was good. But um, I think just like giving giving them the resources in terms of like good fields, like the, the team that I worked with played at a converted baseball stadium. Um, so like new grass had to be laid every game um, over the infield of a baseball stadium, whereas the men's team gets to play on a fairly nice pitch um, with a much higher attendance or with like three times as many uh, capacity. I think just that difference of show, and it just shows the players as well. Like this is what your value is to us, I guess. So would you say that there's a bigger fan base for, even though the fan base for the the national women's team is huge, of course, in the US, mm-hmm. it, that doesn't translate to the like local league? Yeah, I think that it would, I think different cities do it differently. Like Portland, um, they're just a soccer city. <laughs> is their term that here in the U.S. Um, so their women's and men's teams get crazy amounts of fans and stay pretty equal. Um, but other cities, it, it's just lacking a little bit. Like even here in Chicago, our women's team has some of the most women's national team players on it um, out of all the rest of the teams in the league. And yet attendance is still lower than what you see at the men's team where to be up honest we're not you know top five in the league it is a lower level of fan base and I think too like other factors contribute to it like we play in the center of the city so it's easy to get to whereas they play out of the city which um, can take you know an hour to get to with traffic and you can't enjoy the game as much as you have to drive so it's um I think there's just other factors that also influence it it's crazy though that there's such a difference in that as soon as the sort of the team breaks off into their own club teams then that following disappears or something. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right after the world cup, it was, it was big. They definitely had a lot of fans, um, mm-hmm. but I think that it's you know, after the world cup. And you see that too, with men's soccer, you know, the world cup brings in a lot more fans. Um, and then, yeah. Do, do you really see that? In the, do you really see that in the U S when there's a big international tournament that football is massive for those couple of months and a few months after, and then it dies down until the next one. Um, I would say that it definitely rises during major tournaments um, and then falls back a little bit. I mean, different cities do it differently, but for the most part, I'd say it's, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, and, and just going back to to the sort of difference in treatment that the men's teams and the women's teams get, I mean, that will be what fueled a lot of the conversations that happened after the World Cup. And you, mm-hmm. you dropped in very casually there that, you know, you worked with Rapino. And she's obviously become a global figurehead for the fight for equality. What was it like working with her? What was she like? She's so cool. <laughs> um, I mean, she's the same person behind the scenes as she is that you can see her on camera. She's very much a, just, ex- she's somebody that expects everybody else to 
around her to like be at the same level, which is empowering. Not necessarily in terms of on the field, but just like you gotta be on your shit. You have to um, you have to be ready to go. Just you you have to be engaged, <laughs> which I really appreciated. So I enjoyed getting to work with her. She's and she's just a nice nice person. Treated everybody um, very equally from you know the other superstars to everybody else within the club. Yeah, that's cool. And it, and it does seem like over the past couple of years, there has been a real rise in sports people being increasingly active on social media and just using their voice a lot more. It certainly happens here in Europe, and I know it's happening with big names in basketball in, in America. Is that something that's happening just across soccer in, in, in America as well? Or is it really just those big names? Yeah, I think that... I think the league is trying to do what they can as well. It seems as though the Premier League as well is trying to kind of take some initiatives. Um, the MLS that, uh, has done some um, seeing up to racism type projects. Um, I think it is a lot of players. I think there's it's more specific, like team focused. So some teams have really taken these on, whereas other teams have maybe shied away a little bit um, in terms of making a, a ma- taking a major stance um, in some of these issues. In terms of the MLS players, they have started a couple of different coalitions, um, and they're, you know, really trying to use their collective voice to speak out. Um, and then the MLS has tried to back them where they can, which has been fun, fun or interesting to watch over the past year, especially with everything that's been happening in the US. Yeah, internationally. I've forgotten the team, but I know last season there was towards the end of last season, I might have even been the playoffs. It was Landon Donovan's team. Mm-hmm. They walked off the the pitch, right, uh, because of homophobic abuse. Was it? Yes, his team did that. They're in our like second division in the USL. But yeah, I think that actually they twice last year they either just didn't start a match or ended the match early because of abuse of a player. Um, which is great. I just don't think that it gets as much publicity as it should. Yeah, because I was gonna say I think it actually did get quite a lot of publicity over here because it's not something that. I mean, it barely happens for incidents of racism, and I just can't imagine it happening for, unfortunately, for incidents of homophobia. And I think it did It did get a little bit of traction over here. What was the support in general like in America for that? Did it Was he applauded for, for doing that alongside his, his team? Yeah, yes, definitely. I think that in terms of just like the general knowledge of the incident, I don't know how many people actually knew that that happened just the, because it is a lower level or the second division team here and, and people barely read about, I mean, I'm really trash in the league right now. Yeah. Cause obviously in the women's game here in, in the UK and in America, the fight against homophobia is quite obvious. It's quite apparent, you know, it kind of goes without yeah. saying if you're a fan of, of women's football then you're a part of the fight against homophobia but in men's football here in Europe it does seem very different and quite dissociated mm-hmm. but is that is that the same in America on the men's side is there a little bit more talk about action against homophobia yes definitely the MLS teams here do it I in my opinion as equal to the women's teams um, each team hosts a pride night um, and during usually does a lot more than just host a game about it, but have conversations. I think we've partnered with a couple of different organizations, one of them being Athlete Ally, which just does a lot of 
education and uh, support in training, you know, all players, employees of the MLS in different issues related to homophobia. But yes, I would agree. I would say that the men's league here does a, a, a much better job probably than teams in Europe or in the Premier League. Yeah. And related to... Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think that's definitely something that European clubs could learn from the MLS, no doubt. And, and yeah, going back actually to the sort of social media activism, Bastian, I'm, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on the social media boycott that is taking place this weekend, which is very recently hours ago being extended to UEFA and a lot of European bodies as well so not just English football so yeah I was just quite keen to hear what you thought about the effectiveness of a boycott yeah I think I think it was it kind of ties in in the point that I was hoping to make as well around sort of the I guess I'm going to call it activism of, of the of the MLS teams and the women's team it writes it it writes the headlines and people will notice it is it going to drive any changes and which I hope is the genuine motivation for behind the boycott. I personally doubt it in terms of scale, like what these, yes, these football clubs are big, big players on, on these platforms. But I mean, you've got Facebook arguing with countries about spreading news. The recently in Australia, what they had to do to them really, I don't think it's going to make, make that much of a difference or cause any sort of change. It's all about, unless this is sort of a kickoff where these football clubs are, are going to be consistently saying the same thing and with a shared voice, because it's all, all well and good to, to come out with this boycott, but if you then don't follow it up with actions on a consistent basis, it's what we've talked about with the Super League. Football fans are, have an incredible bullshit meter. So this boycott happens for a weekend, and then nothing happens, then fans are going to call your motivations into question. So I hope there's a really nice plan behind it all to follow it up and real action points to keep pressing these social media platforms to be more accountable to what happens on their platforms. But the boycott alone, I'm afraid, is, is not going to, is, is just ticking a box, I'm afraid. Yeah, what do you think, Ali? Yeah, I... Would agree with Justin. I think that, um, I mean, it's it might show something nice for everybody to do this, but it can be, it could potentially come off as performative, which I think that all major clubs and leagues around the world are facing when they when they post or do things on social media like this without following it up with a lot of action. Um, but like you said, I don't know like how how much influence does the league have with Facebook. Instagram like what what can they do with it do you think that it needs to be more of like a a fan education like how much responsibility is there on clubs then to to provide resources or share educational opportunities for fans to kind of combat racism yeah definitely and I think personally what um around the Black Lives Matter I shouldn't call them protests but that's what people are calling them NYCFC put out, in my opinion, a really strong statement where they had really clear follow-up points, whereas, where these are the things we're going to commit to and these are the things that you can sort of keep us true against in a year's time, where in a year's mm-hmm. time you can come back to us and ask us how many new black coaches have you employed and or all of those different questions. And I think that was really strong. And I think yeah. seeing more of that is actually going to drive change. Yeah. 
just being held being held accountable really making sure that you can hold yourself accountable and the fans can hold you accountable because we've seen in the super league that if fans get together they can keep the football world accountable exactly exactly yeah i think i think you're spot on there i think you've you've raised the two points that are on the one hand the club does need to do more than just boycott social media it does need to have a plan of action they can be held accountable to and then as you say it needs to inspire fans to come together and really take action because you're right it's going to take it's going to take a lot for social media platforms to take any notice and to actually make any changes and i think it would take activism on the scale of the super league activism for anything to happen Let's also not forget that football clubs make money on the back of their social media accounts. So <laughs> there's also that element of it. Yeah, very true. Very true. And it, how crazy would it be if City won the league this weekend? When... I know, I know. How t- it would be typical City. I can, I can just imagine all the conversations in that social media team going, how are we going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I guess I'm not it's showing that you're making a real stand if you are able to... it's an opportunity in my book yeah 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 i mean it's certainly an opportunity for i think the premier league would see that as a really that would be a real positive for the league i think as a whole i think city might see it a little bit as a as a missed opportunity but yeah i think it would be strong for the premier league for sure but valley i was actually meaning to because we, we've talked about it in passing, I was meaning to get your thoughts on the Super League. I mean, I know it's all died down and football is back. We got our ball back, as Gary Lineker said, and all these things. But as as an American Manchester United fan, <laughs> were you not the, the target audience? Are you not to blame for this whole thing? <laughs> wow, <laughs> putting that on us. <laughs> um I think that they maybe even underestimate their like their international audience too. Then for us not to to assume that we don't understand the history of football in Europe and how it, this impacts it. I mean, it seems then that they're targeting non soccer fans in the U.S. with that. I talked. My boss is uh, from London and he's a big Chelsea fan, so we had a long discussion about this when it happened as well. And like, I don't know if I like allowed to have as strong an opinion just because I recently became a fan of European soccer. Of course um, you are. That's what football's about. I mean, I completely agree with the with the fan perspective on this. I think that it just seems selfish and greedy of those clubs to to do that. And it's to me it was just like, oh, how are these, you know, big, massive clubs saying they're struggling with money during COVID when smaller clubs also are struggling with money and this will just further hurt them. Yeah, it was it was an interesting couple of days for sure. You've restored my faith in the international fan base. <laughs> I think yeah, I think that they they just completely underestimated us then if yeah. they thought that was to target us. Yeah, they misread the room big time. But this takes us rather nicely onto what is a brand new section of the quick one with conversations podcast and this new section I'm going to call it the debate that no one is having. So the idea <laughs> is that this is going to be a debate between yourself and Bastian, and you're going to have to convince me either way, based on two solutions that I'm going to give you to a very unlikely and 
undesirable scenario. So the scenario that I'm going to give you is that the European Super League is in fact happening. Perez has got his way. However, he has completely forgotten the small matter of referees who are actually all employed by UEFA, have all been trained by UEFA and sneakily overnight have been signed up by UEFA who have made them all sign non-compete so they can't go and join the European Super League and the future of football. So you the two potential solutions to this problem that Perez is faced with are on the one hand to go for a fully automated refereeing system which will be developed by the same developers as VAR in the Premier League and we all know how popular that was or Perez can go back to basics with a Sunday league style refereeing system which involves each team designating an injured player to referee a half each of the game with a coach or another substitute being linesmen using only a bib as a flag. And on top of that, the centre referee, he isn't allowed to move out of the centre circle, doesn't have any cards and cannot give a penalty against his own team. So that those are your two options, Ali. I'm going to let you pick whichever option you would like to go with and you're going to have to convince me why that is the best option for Perez and the future of football. Um... Let's go with the Sunday style a refereeing. I like it. You've read the room, but go on. Yes. Tell, 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 tell me why. Tell me why. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the main arguments about this Super League is that it takes it away from the grassroots football, the football that we play in the community. So if we're able to incorporate one portion of that into the game, then I think that we could start to buy back those fans with a little bit more amateurism. I guess I would say. It would just make it a little bit more exciting and fun to have uh, less structure in this with the Sunday League refs. I like it. I like it. It's a bit of a crowd pleaser, isn't it? Giving it back to the people. Bastian, how are you going to turn this around? Because, I mean, it's, it's, it seems like a bit of a, a no-brainer, but, I mean, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm intrigued to see how you're going to turn this around. Well, for me, I would just take it back to what the vision is behind the Super League. As a Super League, it's got no pretenses or because as I'm part of the Super League now, we have no pretenses that the point isn't of this is to not demonstrate the grassroots of football. Uh, This is something that UEFA, our partners in this Super League, are fantastic at and they are fantastic at managing football and ensuring that it stays in touch with its grassroots. However, the Super League is, is a beast of its own. And as a Super League, we're looking to the future and this is the future of football and of sports is being able to have make no mistakes and we are the pinnacle of football where mistakes aren't allowed and we can solve this with a robotic var system and that will that will not get calls wrong it'll be it'll be measured perfectly and ultimately it's it's going to be what people are going to aspire to well fair play i think you're in a tough spot there (laughs) <laughs> but you you turned it around. You turned it around nicely, especially I'm gonna have to say, I'm gonna have to pick out the moment there where you referred to UEFA as your partners and keeping them in touch with grassroots. I thought that was clever. You know, you could have you could have gone down the route that the real Super League went down of slating 
UEFA, but um, but no, I thought that. In fact, I thought that was smarter than the real Super League. So maybe you should give Perez a call. Um, but I'm gonna have to side with Ali because from the off, she had me. You know, there's no way that I don't want to see a Sunday League style referee incorporated at the elite level. I mean, just to see some of the. The scenes that would ensue, oh, yeah. I, I, I just have to, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, but I mean, Gareth Bale would effectively become a referee. He would all, all he'd be the, <laughs> the designated injured player, wouldn't he? So yeah, I mean, I think that's that's got to be the one for me. Or just like imagine if if there's no injured players and a Sean Dice has to be a lineup, like it would just be fantastic. It it really would. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and I I actually forgot to mention a rule. The linos aren't allowed to give offsides. Offsides are purely dictated on which team can shout the loudest for the offside. <laughs> yeah. This time, sounds so entertaining. I don't know why it's not happening. <laughs> I think we should pitch it. It sounds like Bastia. It sounds like you know if we bring everything together here, I think we've got a better product than the Super League. We've certainly got more to it. We've thought about it a lot for longer, I think, than, yeah, than a lot of them had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so well done, Ali. You read the room well and <laughs> and went with the right option. Yeah, <laughs> and thank you for taking part in our <laughs> inaugural The Debate That No One Is Having. <laughs> I think we're going to wrap it up there because I know that you have to get back to work, Ali. You have to get back to making sure that Chicago Fire make the playoffs. I just, I really wanted to say that. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Learned a lot more than I knew before. There we go. That's what it's all about. This was fun. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too.